0: Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Ben-Murge. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. I hope you're having a good time. I'm Ralph ben Uh, These strange days have really changed us in a lot of ways. We had a bit of a get-together around here outside and safe distance and nice air circulation in the backyard f- for my uh, my beloved's birthday. And the energy that people had of just being able to see each other and talk more than two at a time was uh, really quite incredible. Everybody was double vaxxed who showed up. I made sure of that. Uh, And so we had a good, safe, and fabulous time. But it made me realize how much we have lost in the last year and a half, how much of human connection we have lost. You know, there were those days where you didn't want to go out. You didn't want to see people. And now we're sort of in that place, but for a different reason, because we've sort of lost a lot by having this, plague this virus that is so insidious and so many people seem to have a problem being able to take seriously and you know endangering other people with all that and then how do you talk to each other and how do you have a hard conversation and what happens to friendships and all these things are in play and it's uh, it's a real challenge there's no doubt about it a real challenge. Um, We're just finishing a cycle of high holidays as I record this particular Uh, episode of Not That Kind of Rabbi, Um, and I just wanted to uh, wish everybody of the Jewish faith uh, Chag Sameach. Um, uh, A Chag is a holiday, and Sameach is a good one, so have a happy holidays. We've had the Jewish New Year, the Day of Atonement. We have had Jewish Thanksgiving, Sukkot, and uh, now we're wrapping up with the beginning of the cycle of the the Torah readings again. We read them in order. Um, some friends of mine are priests. And I said, do you guys have an order? And they said, no, we pick things and we use them every week. And I thought, wow, we never do that. (laughs) Whatever is next is next. And and we do it on the lunar calendar. So, you know, we all have different wells that we dig down into the same river. And I think we're all trying to get, whether we have a religion or a spiritual path or even a, a secular, completely secular path, I think we're all looking for purpose and meaning and a way to be with each other that brings us more joy uh, than sadness. So to everybody uh, going through all of this, I, I'm really with you. Um, a few details for me personally. Uh, one is if you like this podcast or even love this podcast, which would be wonderful. Uh, I do have a Patreon account and it is uh, patreon.com NTKR. That's not that kind of rabbi, NTKR. So if you would like to donate any amount uh, per month, uh, that would be a lovely thing. And I'll certainly reach out to you. And I have uh, individualized blogs that I do there for the group that supports the podcast. Um, So that would be wonderful. I'd really appreciate it. The other piece of news from my output in life right now is as of today, uh, well, I think we still have two more days of pre-order before it's actually available through amazon or chapters indigo or my publishers wolf Sack, and win i have a book that has just come out called uh, i thought he was dead a spiritual memoir and uh have had wonderful feedback i have to say I, I i don't write books for a living uh so it's been a strange experience to write one thing i don't know is this any good um but i've had some people i i, I really uh uh, look up to and trust uh, who have said that they enjoyed the book. So um, there's an excerpt available from the book on um, th- at the CJN. Uh, the Canadian Jewish News has published an excerpt from the book, and uh, you can also just go to my Facebook site, Ralph Benmergui on Facebook, and you'll see some some comments and, and and stuff there from people who read it. So I'm excited. I thought he was dead. Is now out, and I uh, appreciate any support that that you. Desire to give to that particular project. Um, all right, speaking of books, I have my guest of uh, this particular episode, uh, and I'll tell you a little bit about him. Um, Yesh Balan um, and I are uh, friends in a profound way because we've both been through some wonderful training as spiritual directors. It's called the Hashpa'ah program. It's part of the Aleph ordination program in the United States. And we were mashed together with a group of people who thought, "Mm, this might be a good idea. Uh, So we got together every, I don't know, five months or so. We'd usually go to this place out, Freeman, Colorado, I think it was, just outside of... Broomfield. Broomfield, that's it. (laughs) Broomfield, Colorado, just... If you're asking. (laughs) I'm asking, outside of Denver, uh, to do our trainings over a three-year period, we did our our uh, spiritual directing uh, uh, work together, and um, I think w- I was the only, except for one of the rabbis who teaches the, the program. I was the only other Canadian in the room at the time, um, so uh, I got to know my American cousins well. Uh, one thing I will say before we start the conversation is, you know, we here in Canada uh, look at the America from a distance, but also from great proximity. They're just over there. Um, But whenever I am in America, I feel very Canadian. I feel like there's a different set of things in play in America than there are in, in my home country of Canada. But I also realize how impermanent all of that is. I mean, I wasn't born in Canada, but I live in Canada. And now all of a sudden I'm a Canadian. But for 500 years, I was something else. I was a Moroccan, so you know it, it's all kind of fleeting, and it's best not to attach too much to it. But the work that Yesh and I did together uh, was wonderful and meaningful work. And uh, he's written his own book now. You see, this is book day—we got book day going. Second book, by the way. Uh, this one's called Unthinkable Dreams. The year that my mom died, and the towers fell. And Yesh Balin is my guest. I'm not that kind of rabbi. How are you, sir? um excellent thank you for having me it's a,
1: it's a real honor and a pleasure and and uh kola kavod on on your book i didn't thank know you had
0: right back at you yeah very good very it's a good. funny it's, it's not, a fun thing no small feat no small feat but you know i don't know how do you find the writing experience actually
1: i love the writing experience uh, most of the time um the, the the evolution of this book was was unusual in a sense that uh a good portion of the book comes right out of my journals from 2001, and um, it sat on the shelf for about 18 years, and then I opened it up, and it was almost like looking at a piece of text and saying, well, what's in here that I can learn from this and, and expand on? So uh, it, was, it was an exploration in the last three years of working on it, which was really fun.
0: So what made you reach over into the bookshelf and go, I think I need to do something with this.
1: I wonder if I know the answer
0: to that. Uh, as you mentioned, I had written
1: a previous book, A Precious Heritage, which is a collection of my favorite of my father's 800 sermons. He was a reform rabbi, mostly on Long Island through the 50s and 60s. And uh, I read 800 sermons and picked the ones I liked best and annotated them and, and, and expanded on them. Uh, so I, it was a that was a, a, something devoted to my father in particular and, a, and it was a, a legacy gift for my family and in one sense it was maybe time to uh, provide something of a very different sort uh, to honor my mother and, and pass on her legacy.
0: Why is that important? For other people it's not important. Why was it important to you to honor your parents this, these ways?
1: Uh, it could be, and, and this is, yeah, I would probably have to get a little bit more therapy to be sure. It could be that it was a process of, of tshuva, you know, where this is the season of, of, of atonement and turning back to our better selves. And, and for me, um, my relationship with my parents wasn't terrible. But well, I think all of us have ways that we can learn from our parents that we forgot to do it while they were here on earth. So uh, in a way it was, it was atonement, it was reconnection, um, forgiveness, compassion. Uh, and as it turns out, it was very therapeutic for me since they're not necessarily uh, observing the results of all this labor, although somebody might argue they are but for me it w- it was uh, very ther- therapeutic atonement
0: w- 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 tell me how that weaves its way into your relationship with your parents and particularly in this case your mother
1: um well my my, my father being the rabbi was uh, and this was in an era before work life balance was a concept he was rarely around and, and then he died relatively young so uh, my mother's influence was profound and uh, she and I probably have a very similar nervous system anyway uh, very uh, artistic, outlandish, noisy um, multi-dimensional and uh, I say you know honestly those those apply to me. My father was a more reverent uh, introspective gentleman. Um, and there came a point in my life where, I realized that I, I needed to connect to some of my father's energy. And I probably didn't do such a good job of pushing my mother's energy aside. And so, I mean, I owed her a little bit of uh, forgiveness or maybe I, I needed to seek a little forgiveness for her and you know, reconnect to the parts that I had pushed away, at least temporarily.
0: It's so interesting because... You honored your father, uh, who was already honored by other people as a rabbi, public facing figure. And then there's this piece of you that says, I've neglected in some way, my mother, is that right?
1: Well, I I think it was more like a ping pong uh, match. It went back and forth. Um, In the early years, um, I had no, no really strong connection with my dad uh, I was totally connected to my mom, uh, her little boy, her the baby of the family, and and we loved a lot of the same things. So you know there was a natural connection. It took some effort to move in the direction of my father, and so mm. you know I kind of pushed her aside. And now I feel um, really after these two books that uh, I, this is this has been a kind of a sometimes conscious, sometimes unconscious goal for for many years is to be able to sit comfortably with, with the very different, and these were polar opposite people, uh to really absorb the best of both of these people who helped, you know, put me into this world, essentially, um, and, and to really love and honor both of them. That's, that's what the Torah tells us to do, right? The Ten Commandments tells that.
0: Yeah, yeah. But, you know, in this kind of a society, there are times where we don't, uh, we don't need to live near our parents, we don't, you know, we live alone, we live in, in our own nuclear families and mothers and fathers kind of melt into the background for a lot of people, for other people, they end up being people they care for. When you start this book, there's, we're kind of meeting your mother in a very vulnerable place. Tell me about where you begin in this book.
1: Well, the, the, the first chapter and this came after a, a lot of feedback from some of my early uh, readers and critics of the book. Uh, I begin with the journal entry from November, sorry, September 11th, 2001, the the day of the terrorist attacks. Uh, That was not just pivotal in the history of the United States. It was pivotal for our family. Mom had died two days before that. And all of a sudden, all of our plans for transporting her body and for transporting ourselves to have a funeral and a normal Jewish mourning process, which is a really rich and powerful and and therapeutic process uh, it, it got it got torn asunder along with all the other destruction of that day so um, but my the spine of the book, not the literal spine but the thread is the journal entries from September eleventh through the rest of the year and um, there are numerous flashbacks in between, which tell about the several months before her death, which was a story in itself uh, where my sister, my brother and I supported mom as, as she came to her end. And we discovered things about her. We listened to her in new ways. We heard a spirituality and a love of Yiddishkeit that she had never really pronounced in all of her previous life. You know, I, m- I mentioned that that she and my dad were polar os- opposites in so many ways. He was a product of Providence, Rhode Island, uh, and a real scholar always. My mother grew up in the South, uh, uh, born in Savannah, raised in Louisville. My father became a rabbi, and he, he, came, he was raised in a, uh, a very conservative, if not orthodox environment. My mother was fairly assimilated. Uh, And then their nervous systems being as different as they were. So these were very different people.
0: Hmm. So there's so much in that first chapter alone. It's just like, whoa, (laughs) like just whoa, Uh, because, uh, you know, trying to make sense of your mother dying and trying to make sense of the twin towers going down in the same week, um, What are some of the things that went through you? Like, I I can't even imagine, what what did it it do? Uh, Well, uh,
1: from the beginning, that first day, after kind of absorbing as much of CNN footage as we could uh, take, I said, wait a second. You know, my mom died two days ago. I don't know what's going on. Um, I I talked to the rabbi. Uh, He said, you know, take care of yourself. Go, go leave, leave the TV. Uh, and I went down to the to about a mile from my house is the san francisco bay a favorite spot for walking meditating writing and uh, and i wrote i wrote uh there um, that fed fed my soul and part of what I wrote is how do I accommodate my grief in the midst of this huge national international grief and mourning that was going on i'll give you. Uh, one example from the book, and that is uh, that evening of September 11th, my daughter and I went to a local congregation, uh, actually four local synagogues that come together for a memorial service. Seemed like a right thing to do. Um, one of the elders of my congregation came up to me to offer condolences. I thought that was also appropriate. And I told him, I was, you know, it's difficult uh, balancing my grief with what everything else that's going on in the world. And he said something to me that I'm sure he meant well, but it did not come out well. He said, well, you know, your mother's death is insignificant in the face of, of what happened today. Uh, no, that was not exactly what I needed to hear at that moment. I said, it, her death was not insignificant it was just different so it was a, a real a minute, push pull.
0: A knowing you
1: yeah i said it nicely really because <laughs> <Okay, so that's
0: laughs> i'm thinking you could have just turned on this guy and gone well kind of a schmuck says that today
1: Right. Well, knowing me, and you didn't know my mother, but she was perfectly <laughs> capable of doing almost anything you can imagine at that moment.
0: <laughs> well, that's an enormous amount of restraint, I must say. Very good. Very good. <laughs> so was part of um, the struggle to make sense of this, uh, not the, the macro event of the towers, but of your mother, is the interruption of the idea of what you should and could have done in terms of mourning, you know, the, the the week of Shiva, the burial, all of these things. How did you navigate this world? And what what cracks did it form in your relationships and your family? Uh,
1: well, uh, apparently you've read the book because you know that it did form some cracks or at least expose them. Um, Well, the challenge of course, is that um, we don't begin our ritual mourning process until after interment. And with the body stuck on the West Coast and the grave on the East Coast, we didn't know when that was gonna happen. All the planes were were down in the United States for several days. Um, So, you know, we, we, really didn't know what to do. And then uh, really, uh, just a day later on, on September 12th, my brother, who at that time, my brother of blessed memory, uh, at that time, he was a rabbi also uh, in Florida. So three hour time zones ahead of us. And he called and say he had just conducted a shiva, a, a, a morning ritual in his home. Um, and uh, I said, wait, you know, what do you mean you just conducted a shiva? He says, well, during time of war, uh, the, the halakha, the law is that you start your shiva uh, but even before the body has been returned. If the body can't be returned, you just start the shiva anyway. Uh, and I said, well, that may or may not make sense. Are we at war? Uh, maybe the planes will start flying. Maybe we could still have a funeral. Uh, but... What was difficult about that is we had spent so many hours, months preparing for what we would do in the inevitable uh, eventuality of my mother's death, that for him to kind of go off on, on his own and start something and not tell his brother and sister about it till after the fact, it was a bit galling. And that was the beginning of a, of a uncomfortable few days between the two of us. Out it, it a little. Go ahead.
0: No, you you talk about it um, not creating the cracks but revealing them. What did, what did it reveal about the relationships between you and your brother?
1: My brother is five years older than I, and uh, so he was out of the house while I was still kind of growing up, and um, typically lived distant from me. So there were obvious separations. In fact, you started the conversation just uh, earlier uh, talking about connection. And uh, that's one of the three themes of the book. The book is divided into separation, uh, compassion, and connection. And so this was a a piece of the separation that maybe always was there, but what was also always there, and, and you referred to this earlier as well, is our need for connection. And there was never a time when there wasn't at least hidden within my breast, if not uh, uh, in my consciousness, a need to connect with my brother. And so that's that's really one of the, uh, not the uh, spoiler alert, uh, by the time we get to the end of the year, the, the journal entries described how we really did come together as a family.
0: You know, one of the things I think I intuited about you when we first met and we we took some walks together. Was that there were some pieces of of who you were that y- you might have to struggle with forgiveness for people that you there might be a certain judgment and I, uh and I, I didn't see it in a dark way. I just saw it as your journey of wanting to be better at being able to let those things go. And in the book, I really felt like that was a real journey of. You know, I can either hold on to this and you know grudge my way through my relationship with my brother uh, or I can't. And you wouldn't be alone because a lot of people when they're faced with internal issues of family and death and things like that, or marriage any life cycle event can really split people up sometimes. Talk to me a bit about that journey for you, which you talk about in the book.
1: Well, thank you for, for putting it that way. I believe that uh, part of it is uh, an inherent value for family and family connection. Um, And one that maybe was so ingrained that I probably wouldn't even have been able to voice it. Maybe didn't even know how important it was to me uh, until maybe recognizing that not everybody goes around with that. Uh, I certainly have heard enough stories of, of siblings who have written each other off for life and see no reason whatsoever to ever try to bridge that gulf. Um, I include in the book a poem that I wrote, um, not during this time period, but years before it, about my relationship with my brother. And uh, it, it's one that just describes a, a morning when I was in kindergarten, And he was a first grade, no, uh, he was, he must've been a fifth grader or something, sixth grader. He was, he was a lot bigger and he rode me to school on his, on on his bicycle. Um, And what it meant for me to be in his kind of little shelter the sukkah of his arms as, as we're, we're going to school. Um, And then to realize that we had gone off in different directions for many years. but I was recalling that wonderful moment when we were together as brothers, and I read that to the rabbi um, at one time when I was struggling with my relationship with with Jeff, my brother. Um, and the rabbi said, "Do you realize how much yearning you have to be with your brother?" I said, "I didn't even know it was in the poem. You know, it was it was just it was just kind of a natural expression. So it was great bringing that to the surface. Um, I describe in the book how. I went out of my way to join Jeff at a rabbinical retreat that he went to every summer. I said, can I, can I go with you to, to, to the Smoky Mountains, or I'm not, I'm not good at geography, but someplace in North Carolina uh, to his retreat. And it was a wonderful place for us to get together. And then, and I know you're very familiar with the, the Jewish men's retreats uh, in Connecticut, Uh, I invited him to join me to to my retreat center a few years later. And um, I'm glad to say, uh, before his much too early death, uh, that we had really connected
0: in, in important ways. What role did your sister play in all of this?
1: I am so happy that you asked that question, because so much of the conversation about the book tends to be and rightly so, about what happened with Jeff and myself and, and that drama. But the months preceding mom's death were extraordinarily, and I was very close. My sister and I are, are closer. I'm, I'm the baby. She's the middle child. So we were always, always a little bit closer. Um, and in this period of time, we were closer geographically as well. And I could get down. Uh, I live in the Bay Area. She's in Southern California, where mom spent her, her last year. Um, So I could get down there frequently and and be with my sister, but she was there all the time. You know, take, you you see this in a lot of families taking the main responsibility for supporting mom uh, in in her declining uh, months. Um, It was really important for us to have that time together. Um, Just a few days ago, I gathered my sister and her children and my children and our grandchildren together so I could give them copies of the book. And uh, one of the first things I did was I read the, the, the first paragraph of my acknowledgements is to my sister. None of this would have happened without her. So I uh, have a great uh, uh, love and a debt of gratitude for her and all she did for mom and with me and, and just our sustaining relationship.
0: You know, the other part of that can be sometimes that the two siblings who are aligned, and then the other sibling that's in another orbit, like like Jeff, your brother, and that the two of you can sort of say, "Well, we don't need him in in this orbit anymore." It can be tricky, right?
1: Well, I don't think we ever looked at it that way. There, there was one particular week during the summer before Mom's death where it just seemed a lot was, was coming up. Um, I should, I should mention that that an important part of the summer and our conversation with mom for a while, that was the, the, the the working title of the book was conversations with mom. So much of it was about what she had to say. And so much of what she had to say was irrational. And uh, uh, my wife, Uh, who has volunteered in in grief counseling, brought to our attention a a book that I would recommend called Final Gifts. Uh, The the subtitle, I think I have the subtitle here, Um, Understanding the Special Awareness Needs and Communications of the Dying. It was powerful in, in helping us to listen to mom's seemingly irrational words and look at them as metaphors, almost like you interpret a dream and find out the meaning beneath the words. That absolutely opened up our dialogue and it was so powerful. And so I mentioned that this one week when we discovered that, we we really would love to have had Jeff there, um, but he was not just because he was 3000 miles, it happened to be the same week that he was off with his rabbinical retreat that, that summer. Uh, And he so he was where he needed to be. And we we didn't have any misgivings about that. And we got together whenever we could, which, you know, several times during that summer. And certainly, uh, as the book describes, uh, I already gave the spoiler alert. uh, In December, the whole family got together and had the memorial service that we were denied when 9-11 disrupted the normal funeral.
0: You said at the beginning that uh, in that last while with your mother, you learned a lot about her, what did you learn? Well, primarily that she had a
1: spiritual side. She even talked about seeing spirits, seeing my spirit hovering uh, in the room. And we had never had any kind of occult or spiritual conversation in our entire lives. So that came as a surprise. She used the word Yiddish kite. Jewishness and, and described her love for Yiddishkeit. She talked about um, wanting to make sure that she was connected to God. This is not the mother I knew for all those years. She was such an iconoclast. She loved to break the mold as a rabbi's the mold as a rabbi's wife. She she knew we all knew there never was one before like her or since. Um, she was you know feisty and just a real cut up. So. To see this, and she—and it wasn't even that she was so deeply serious all of a sudden. She was just open. She was gentle. She was relaxed. You know, I get excited talking about it, but I also know that when I take the time to relax, I get on a different plane, and she was on that different plane. It was beautiful.
0: That is beautiful. And, uh, you, you know, sometimes people think that if someone knows they're dying, that they they're trying to cling and grasp to something to, to have meaning out of it, but it doesn't sound like that's what she was going through. It sounds like she was just going through an availability, an openness. Is that, is that what, how you would see it? or
1: something like? was, No, that's just right. She was relaxed. She was satisfied. She was happy. Uh, I, again, I remarked in the book how I knew enough about her life past and present, to know that she had had plenty to be upset about or angry about or remorseful about, as we all do. But she was content, and she was genuinely content. Uh, that was beautiful in
0: itself. Did it change the way you see dying? Wow. Um
1: I would, I, I can't say change exactly. I'm not sure how much I had thought about it, <laughs> but it certainly informed uh, the way I, I would see dying. Uh, you know, uh, y- years ago, I took a, a sequence of courses also with with the Olive Jewish Renewal Group that taught us the the uh, spiritual direction. And they have, a, it's now a part of a, an organization called Yerusha, a sequence of courses uh, that Zalman Shachter Shalomi of Blessed Memory uh, initiated on aging to saging. I do them up here.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah, so yeah, yeah.
1: Um, one of the courses I, I took, uh, was on uh, dot, death as homecoming was the name of the course. And one of the first things we did was to design our death, write down exactly how you want to see that experience. And I did that a long time ago uh it must have been after mom died. Uh, yeah, it was probably in the, the 20 teens sometime. But um, I don't know that I was consciously informed of my mother's death. But I did imagine a, a, a death for me where um, I would be receiving family members to my bedside and being able to give blessings, um, at which mom did uh, in her own way. Um so, yeah, it's nice to be able to, uh, even if it's something you may never realize, but to create a vision of death that's not scary and painful, but peaceful and loving.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have a friend who is got a very rare uh, heart disorder and uh, there's a chance he won't be around and there's a chance he will. He he's just sort of living in the middle of it. Um, but when he was told about this and told, you know, really your chances are very good here, uh, I asked him how he felt about it. And he said, his first thought was, well, I guess I'm going home. Mm. And I thought, you know, uh, for others, it's just the terror of it all. And for others, it's the the certainty that, you know, there's an afterlife and it's going to be a certain way and you're going to be in it. And but for him it, it was a beautiful moment of just so now I go home. And, and and I just you know when he told me that I just wanted to cry because it was so perfect, it was so loving. That's, that's sweet. Yeah, it was lovely. How do you how do you deal with 9-11 in all of this?
1: My memories of 9-11 and how it affect
0: affected me? Well, just how your mother's die, died, 9-11's happened. Uh, do those things come together? Or, like, or are they just like two really strangely different things?
1: Well, they're very connected. Uh, and, and I could answer that in two different time frames. One is, um, so mom died in September, September 9th. Um, it just so happens I had a business trip to New York in November of 2001. And um, out of necessity, and my wife joined me on this business trip. We made a long weekend of it. And during that weekend, the first thing we did was go down to ground zero and spend some time at that site uh, where that tragedy occurred that had a ripple effect. And, And as I think about it, it had a ripple effect with probably thousands, if not millions of people in different ways. But I just... Very conscious of the ripple effect it had in our lives and our family. And we went to the site and we paid respects. It, it really clarified and, and, and modified my understanding of 9/11 to be on site. There's, there are you know personal uh, notes and flowers and pictures and the kind of memorials that that spring up in different places, but this was huge the number of people who had made tributes to, to people that they had lost. And that kind of put a face on, it's not 3,000 people. It's one person at a time and their life story and, and the people that they've left behind. So, um, and then to stand there, and it happened to be a Saturday morning. And I had, uh, some observant Jews are going to be going to say a Kaddish, their, their, the memorial prayer uh, for their losses uh every day for a year. For me I was content with doing it every Shabbat and it was a Shabbat morning and I was standing there w- with all of this reminder of the death and destruction in that site and it was only natural to recite kaddish not just because it was my mother's you know my mother's memory on, a, on another Shabbat morning but for all the people there and it didn't really even matter and when tears came it, I didn't stop and ask who who are these tears were. It was, it was just a beautiful release in that moment. I, I said I'd give you in, in two time frames. The right. other time frame is this last 9-11, just a couple of weeks ago, um, was quite a confluence for me. So Thursday 9-9, 2021 was the 20th yard site of my mom. Um, and then that weekend, uh, 9-11 was on Shabbat. Uh, it was Shabbat Shuvah, the, the Sabbath between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the Sabbath of return, the Sabbath of atonement. And um, to to bring 9-11's anniversary and Shabbat Shuvah, my mother's yard site together, I actually gave the Devar Torah, the, the sermon uh, at my synagogue. And I was excited to give it at the little the tiny little synagogue uh, in Georgia where my father delivered his last sermon and where where my mother lived for decades after his death. Uh, So it was a real, it was a return in so many senses to be able to connect those events.
0: Yeah, I remember in the book when your father dies and I think you had an expectation your mother was going to get out of there as soon as she possibly could and instead she turns around and loves it for decades, right?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, she was from the South, and she felt that when she went North with my dad, that she was being held hostage in the North (laughs) for all those years. She was so glad to be back in the South, and and it it was perfect for her.
0: You know, when I think of 9-11, maybe it's because I'm not American. You know, I have a bit of distance from it. Um, And I think about, you know, this memorializing and then every name being said, and and I, and I, I guess there's a part of me that hopes that for people, um, who are doing that, that they also think about, you know, all those faceless people who die, you know, the, the, the hundreds of thousands of Iraqis who died afterwards, the Afghanis mm-hmm. who died afterwards, and how we don't know their names. And we don't, you know, we, we put so much more value on our own, uh, and their lives. And, you know, I think even growing up, there was, um, this idea that I hope the Holocaust is not just our lesson, but is the lesson for, for everyone uh, about all of this and how we solve our problems, so to speak, uh, and how horrific it can be, but also how there's also beauty in the world. So I I wonder, you know, when a a parent dies, there can be a, a flowering of compassion for the other and but for really the other, like all other. Uh, And I I wonder in terms of the compassion part of who you are, how has that grown in those 20 years?
1: Wow, that's a
0: (laughs) a very deep
1: question. (laughs) Um, Well, one of the things, uh, and and I I have to agree with your, your premise that what seems most Proximate, proximal, uh, nearest to us, um, always takes on greater proportions. Uh, it's much harder to, to have empathy for someone who's not there or someone who's different or someone who's far away. Um, it takes a little e- extra effort or someone who you know we just don't agree with or we come from a different culture. All of those things are true. Uh, it takes a little extra effort. And I won't hold myself up as a a paragon of empathy and compassion, but what I've learned about it, what what I'm trying to teach myself. In fact, uh, someone recently told me that uh, uh, every book is, uh, uh, or or every self-help book, uh, the person who gets the most help is the author, right? (laughs) So so this isn't a self-help book, but there are pieces of it. You know, I was a teacher. And, and I, I was just out for a walk this morning. I said, you know, I just realized this book is, is just another form of teaching. And, and, when, when, and this is a truism also, these teachers uh, learn by teaching and they may learn more than their students. So uh, in that regard, by writing this book and, and describing a path from, from separation through uh, compassion to connection, I realize that that's work that I continue to need to do. Um, And yeah, I I hope that
0: I've made some progress in recognizing the opportunities there. Well, you know, I mean, sometimes it's these events, uh, huge or or personal that uh, give us enough pause to allow some space for these parts of ourselves to grow. You know, when we're 32 years old and, It's all about our careers and we're marching along in the world. uh, It it can be a less generous time for a lot of us. And, you know, when we see people pass, I think we have that opportunity to be able to say, this is just a flicker of the eye and life is over and we have to appreciate it. What do you, what do you want people to get most out of what you've written here? Hmm. Uh, Before I respond to that,
1: what what you just said uh, triggered a, a thought about uh, Reb Zalman's works so and the aging to saging. And and maybe this is the message as as much as anything else, that the fact that uh, as we get older, uh, he would say, of course, that uh, you know the body may may not be able to do everything it could do, but that doesn't mean that the spirit can't continue to grow, and and that he provides provided processes for taking advantage of hopefully some greater wisdom in old age. And part of that was harvesting uh, lessons from the past and and recontextualizing uh, uh, issues and events and and feelings from the past and say, hey, maybe maybe that uh, argument I had back then or the embarrassment I suffered back then wasn't as terrible as I thought it was. Maybe I learned something from that that I can bring forward. And so a, a, a good portion of this book is that kind of recontextualizing, looking at the past. Not only do I, do I go into the, the, that time frame of 2001, but there are flashback, the, the flashbacks in the book that go further into our family yeah. history and, yeah. and describe who we are and how we got to be who we are. Um, to be able to go back there and, and with Rahmanis with compassion, and, and say, okay, maybe that wasn't so bad, and here's what I can learn from that. And then the other thing that Reb Zalman would say is you also have an opportunity to look ahead and say, how am I going to leave a legacy? Uh, what can I do uh, of value and of beauty that I can leave behind that will last longer than, than I do? And uh, so in, in some ways, uh, and, and there are probably other lessons, uh, but... But I have modeled that behavior actually unwittingly. I didn't say, oh, let me put Rep Zalman's principles to work. It's just, it was a natural thing. I I needed to look at this this story. I needed to learn from it. And I needed to write it down. And and if nobody else reads it, I hope my family does. uh, But I hope other people do as well. Um, so that in and itself, to me, is a, is a valuable way of looking at our, our eldering, the fact that we can make something out of it more than just the, the remorse from the past and the fear of the future.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Um, unthinkable Dreams, The Year That Mom Died and the Towers Fell by Yesh Balan and his previous book, A Precious Heritage. How do people get unthinkable dreams?
1: One easy way is to go to my
0: webpage,
1: which is yeshindeed, Y-E-S-H-I-N-D-E-E-D.com. And uh, the prompts on, as soon as you get to the website, will take you right to an opportunity to order it. And, um, well, I don't know when you're going to air this right now. There's a discount code. Maybe I'll see if I can get another one going.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, yeshindeed.com, right? yes indeed.com yes indeed yes indeed yes thank you so much for doing this with me i really appreciate it
1: the pleasure is all mine thank you and congratulations on a beautiful podcast and your book and and uh and looking forward to the day we get together we're too far away also. wouldn't
0: it be lovely i'll come to california once this crazy is over because it's uh i'll come in the winter i'll <laughs> put it that way i could appreciate That's a it by v- that. very <laughs> good idea yes i think so we have a guest room yeah i'll be there ma um um so folks thank you so uh, so much for listening i'll remind you if you want to support not that kind of rabbi patreon.com slash ntkr any amount per month is lovely and i appreciate it my book is called i thought he was dead it's available on Indigo Chapters. It's available on uh, Amazon. It's available from Woolsack and Wind, uh, my publishers as well. So uh, uh, take a look, have a listen, enjoy. Uh, take care of each other and we'll see you soon. Thanks, Yesh.
1: My pleasure.